Welcome to the podcast edition of Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Anne Hill, and every week I explore topics related to dreams, sleep, health, culture, and consciousness. Dream Talk Radio airs every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific Time on KOWS 107.3 FM in Occidental, California. And you can catch the live stream at www.kows.fm. To find out more about Dream Talk Radio, visit my website at anhill.org. That's A-N-N-E-H-I-L-L dot org. Meanwhile, I hope you enjoy this edition of Dream Talk Radio. Well, good morning, everybody. You're listening to KOWSLP Occidental. It is Thursday morning, 9 o'clock, and it's time for Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Anne Hill, and today I have a very special guest in the studio, Dr. Lois Johnson, a physician in Santa Rosa, who uh, does general practice, but also uh, works a lot with women's health and cancer and other other issues. And um, Dr. Johnson is going to talk to us about sleep and herbs and dreams and all things in between. Welcome to the studio. Thank you so much. It's lovely to have you here, and um, so pleased that you could find time to to talk to us today. Um, we were talking a little bit um, before the show about just dreams in general, and I know that you you told me one um, story about a patient who had a dream that you were able to sort of help with a... Oh, yeah. Um, a patient had a dream that there was a tattered butterfly at the base of her neck that was trying to take off and fly and couldn't quite get there. And that made me wonder if something was going on with her thyroid, because the thyroid is a butterfly-shaped gland that sits at the base of the neck, and sure enough, that was one of her problems. So that was one of the more dramatic examples where patients sharing her dream with me helped me to um, think about what might be going on with her health. So you must be able to elicit that information Yes, I ask about people's dreams, part of the new patient visit when I'm assessing their sleep. Mm -hmm. I always ask about their dream life, so that's one area. But um, people just seem comfortable telling me all kinds Mm -hmm. of things, and um, so people often come with a dream that has gotten their attention, um, something about their body or something about their health. And sometimes I encourage people to invite their dreams to be helpful for them in Mm -hmm. making a medical decision or getting more information about um, their diagnosis or where they need to go next with their health. So that's a pretty common thing. And I find in the case of people coming in and having a dream about their body um, that often it's not like they've made a diagnosis it's more about their body getting their attention in some Mm -hmm. way and i would encourage people who have specific dreams about a part of their body to at least look at that part and see what's going on there absolutely absolutely i had a a friend have a dream about uh, her walking down the sidewalk and her heart fell out of her of her chest onto the sidewalk Mm -hmm. Whoa. Oh, get that checked out, please. Yes. <laughs> you know, even if, even though the dream may have multiple levels of things, it's always... Right, it's always yeah. symbolic. It's usually yeah. not very specific. Mm-hmm. So when I'm asking people to 
invite their dream life, I remind them that it's not like a little guy's going to pop up with a sign saying, do this or do that. It's usually an image or something else that they can then work with in their journal and their art Mm -hmm. or just in their thought processes to see where that leads. And um, I think that can be helpful. I know there's been a lot of uh, work in various parts of the country with cancer patients and dreams, using dreams to elicit healing imagery that you can then use and, you know, everything. And some of my patients have come up with really beautiful imagery. Mm -hmm. You know, not always the the warlike image of something fighting the cancer. But, you know, one patient had... um, like a fountain of golden light mm. pouring over her tumor. And that became the image that she would use when she was doing her visualizations. Beautiful. Yeah. Really lovely. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today is, well, I guess maybe we should start with sort of how you are able to use dream information to get at you know, to get into the complexity of what is actually going on for people. Mm -hmm. It's hard to explain because it's just an art that you develop when you talk with people about their health all the time. So I would just get them to describe what was going on in detail and, um, and then to talk about how they felt about it, what it brought up for them. Um, And often then questions will occur to me of um, how to pursue that down any particular path. So it's very nebulous to try to explain. It's just a matter of being a good listener and Mm -hmm. knowing how to ask people questions. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, that seems to be the key to so many helping professions is being a good listener. Yeah, it's one of the things I feel really sad about what's happened to institutional Western medicine and doctors mm-hmm. don't have time to listen to people's stories because kind of the pressure from the way the insurance and everything is set up to do it in a hurry. And in my practice, I feel really privileged to be able to give people the time to tell their stories because that's where the solutions are. Yeah. That's where I figure out how to help people. Exactly. So if somebody were to come into your office and complain, you know, among other things, undoubtedly, about feeling tired or not getting good sleep, where would you, how would you sort of tease that out in in terms of figuring out what, how, where to go? I mean, obviously it's a general question and we're not going to ask you for specifics, but. So um, I would say that almost always sleep issues are part of a bigger story. And so, again, I'm going to the story, having the person um, talk to me. And I would start by asking them a lot of details, generally starting with the morning, how much coffee do you drink? That would be one good question. I would ask them generally about their stress level and their work life and family life, what's going on there. And then I really want to know a lot of details about their evening what they do as they're preparing for bed. So what time do you eat dinner? What kind of dinner do you eat? Do you have alcohol, marijuana, other drugs Mm -hmm. after dinner? And how do you spend your evening um, TV, computer, two things I feel can interfere with sleep Mm -hmm. and generally recommend that people stop, turn those off a couple hours before they go to bed. 
And um, then I want to know about how they get ready for bed, what their rituals are, their evening rituals. Mm -hmm. I ask them questions about their bedroom. Is it quiet? Is it dark? Is the mattress lumpy? Um, is the person you sleep with snore and steal the covers? <laughs> um, and what do they do in bed when they're trying mm -hmm. to get to sleep? You know, if they're watching TV again or um, reading something that might be arousing to the brain, you know, don't read politics before you go to bed, right, for example. Right. <laughs> and, um, and then I want to know exactly what the sleep disturbance is like. Do they have trouble getting to sleep? Do they fall asleep okay, but then they wake up? And if so, what time? And um, if they wake up, what is going on with their body? And in that conversation, generally things will come up that give me clues, like does a person have pain? Mm -hmm. Are they having hot flashes? Do, are they having trouble shutting their mind down and the, kind of what I would call monkey mind, right. where they can't slow down and um, stop thinking about things? Are they worried about something? Are they waking up because they have to go to the bathroom a lot? And, um, you know, just kind of what's the first thing you notice when you wake up in the middle of the night? So that's kind of where I start. And by the time I've explored all of that, I generally am starting to get some sense of... Um, what the problem might be. And I would say the way I organize it in my mind, I see the treatment and the issues of the person who has trouble getting to sleep as being different from the purple who, person who's waking up in the middle of the night. And I think those tend to represent somewhat different problems and issues. The trouble getting to sleep is usually an easier thing to deal with because that's often about what we call sleep hygiene. Right. Um, you know, what's going on at the end of the day and the busy mind and those kinds of things. And so there, um, you know, I would really, really want to know all the details of what's going on, help them to develop a bedtime ritual. It might be a warm bath with some lavender bath oil or some soft music or... Um, one thing I found really helpful, a lot of my patients have benefited from this, is um, to do a journal entry at the end of the day where they acknowledge their worries and concerns and fears or whatever is up for them in their lives and then shut the book on it for the night. And sometimes it's also helpful to put a, um, an intention about the sleep, sleeping peacefully and deeply. Mm -hmm. One of my patients actually wrote her worries on little pieces of paper and put them in an ice cube tray and put it in the freezer because she felt great. like they were so big that, you know, shutting the book on it wasn't enough. She had to put it on ice for sort the night. stop the inflammation. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of a way of, um, I think it's good to acknowledge the worries are there. Um, because if you don't, then they're, you know, if you try to suppress it or deny it and not right. look at it, then it can come back. So I think that's helpful. I tell them not to put the journal next to their head. They uh -huh. want to put the journal in a drawer or in another room or something where it's um, not right in the bed. Right, so literally all those worries are being sent somewhere else. Put aside. Yeah. Don't take them to bed with right. you. Right, And also that person who's just having trouble getting to sleep, that's where the um, kind of the traditional sleep herbs come in, things like valerian and skullcap and chamomile and passionflower 
and all of those. There are lots of those herbs. They range from mild to strong, chamomile being a mild one and passionflower and valerian being the stronger ones. And those are basically just relaxing the mind, <clears throat> getting the person to um, shut down a little bit. One thing I've learned about those herbs is that there's really individual preference. People uh -huh. resonate with different ones, so sometimes you have to try more than one or a combination. And also dosage matters. So the most common reason those herbs don't work is the person just didn't take enough. Interesting. And so when you buy your little tincture bottle at the store and it says, you know, 15 drops, some people need a lot more than that. Right. And those herbs are safe enough that it's okay to take a big glug of it. Even the valerian and passion yes. flower? Yes. Uh -huh. But again, I wouldn't start with the big dose. It's right. just if a little bit isn't working, you can really increase it. I mean, I personally once took a tablespoon of passion flower tincture in a desperate moment when uh -huh. I couldn't get to sleep, and that finally knocked me down. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be an exceptionally large dose. I'm not encouraging anybody to do that as their yeah. first step. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's... The, the herbs are safe enough that generally you could increase the dose if right. you needed to. So you you usually recommend a tincture just going to... I mean, there are so many out there. Yeah, again, I'm going a little bit with my intuition. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and I'll give you a couple examples of specific things. Valerian is a really good sleep remedy, but a small percentage of people get an idiosyncratic reaction where it agitates them. And so I'm really cautious about that one. And someone who's anxious or maybe a little nervous about doing herbs for the first time or someone where I just feel as fragile and sensitive enough that having a bad reaction like that would really set things back. Mm -hmm. um, passion flower I like because it is kind of long-lasting relatively. Mm -hmm. And so the person who's waking up a lot at night might take that. Um, and the other thing you can do with those herbs, by the way, is take a second dose if you do wake up sometime in the night and you're feeling like you're not going to be able to relax and get back to sleep. Um, so given the range of those, um, you know, I'm just thinking about what else is going on with the person. An example would be motherwort, uh -huh. which is a traditional menopause herb. It's on the mild to moderate end in terms of strength, but it really shuts down the um, sympathetic axis, which is basically the physical symptoms of stress and anxiety. So someone who's maybe feeling a little shaky or heart's pounding right. or just feeling like their adrenals are activated. Motherwort can sometimes help the body to feel more relaxed. So that would be a good one in that situation. So we're really fortunate. I mean, I would say using these herbs over the years, I don't find any of them addicting in the way that the sleep drugs are. Right. Um, people don't tend to get tolerance and dependence with them. So I feel comfortable doing it from that perspective. That's really interesting to think about the, um, the herbs in terms of their uh, efficacy is physically and sort of for the nervous system, you know, the anxiety that mm -hmm. the, uh, I mean, I know that for myself, if I'm, if I'm having trouble getting to sleep, I can usually figure out if this is, you know, has something just happened that has upset me. And so I could just take a little bit of tincture of valerian and skullcap and whatever, 
and get to sleep and then I would be asleep for mm-hmm. the night? Or is this some, um, some bigger thing where I'm going to need like, uh, to do melatonin, which is kind of acts for my, for my body anyway. It, it acts throughout the night. So it'll right. just sort of keep that suppressed. Yeah, so that's where the, it comes in that people who just have trouble getting to sleep, but once they're asleep, they're okay. The valerian passionflower skullcap, motherwort, chamomile, that range of herbs are um, sometimes all you need to do for that. But people who are waking up in the middle of the night, you have to think of other things. So I'll kind of tell you what my mind is asking when somebody has that. Um, If the person is waking up just frequently every hour or something like that, often there are anxiety, stress, or other issues going on, or pain, or some physical sensation that's doing that. But the pattern where the awakening is somewhere around 3 o'clock in the morning, there I would think of um, depression. Mm -hmm. I would think of stress and adrenal issues. What's going on with stress and adrenal is um, we have a diurnal rhythm of our cortisol, which is the adrenal stress hormone. It's supposed to be low at midnight, and then it starts to rise at around 3 o'clock in the morning, and then it's at its peak at 8 o'clock in the morning. And people who are chronically stressed sometimes have an early rise of cortisol, or they have a sharp rise of cortisol, which is arousing at 3 o'clock in the morning. So that's kind of when that starts. And for that person, I'm going to be working more during the day with herbs to balance their adrenals. Um, Also hypoglycemia can cause the 3 a.m. awakening. Right, that blood sugar. The drop in blood sugar. And basically, when your blood sugar drops, your body produces um, hormones that cause the body to release sugar from its storage sites. And and those are like epinephrine, adrenal arousal hormones. So people sometimes wake up from that. And the clues of that are often present from their history that they um, crave carbohydrates, uh-huh. that they get shaky or feel off balance if they don't eat soon enough. Or there might be some family history or some other reasons that I suspect that there's something going on with their blood sugar. And for that person, sometimes just um, changing their diet is all right. that you need to do. And I'll just pass this on as one of my favorite easy pieces of advice. If you have blood sugar issues, either hypoglycemia or hyperglycemia, and especially if you're a carb craver and have trouble with that, just eat a protein breakfast. That works dramatically well. Oh, that's interesting. So I just tell people a substantial protein-based breakfast, nothing that tastes sweet in the mouth, even fruit, Um, nothing made with white flour in the morning. And that seems to set the tone for the blood sugar to keep it more stable. For the whole day. And it often um, reduces the carb and sugar cravings and um, stabilize energy and make people stamina and just more even mood and everything. Even, even, I'm sorry, even through the night then it sort of... Well, for that person who's waking up at night, they probably need to eat a little protein and possibly some complex carb snack right before they go to bed because as you can imagine if you ate dinner at six and you don't eat breakfast till seven or eight that's your longest time without eating 
So a bedtime snack, that's one situation where I would recommend a bedtime snack. And there are also um, chromium, which is a mineral that stabilizes blood sugar and other herbs that I might use in that situation. But the protein breakfast, what people tell me is the carb craver that often, um, just over a period of about a month, their carb cravings come under better control. That's really interesting. You know, it makes me think of how many things are uh, are shifted by simply how we start our day. Yeah, my mother was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't you love those moments? Yes, so I, I guess do. all right, mom. Thanks. But I've, in from my reading, thinking about uh, sleep issues and exercise. The general advice is to exercise but in the you know in the morning not right. right before bed because then your your metabolism is doing something different than sleeping yeah i would agree with that and exercising in bright sunlight um, oh. it's one of the things that helps pr- promote um, melatonin production i would say about melatonin that i do prescribe it for sleep disturbance but i'm much more likely to make sure that the person is sleeping in darkness. Uh-huh. You only make melatonin if it's dark at night and bright sunlight in the day. So you need those two things to produce your own melatonin. Right, so people who are, are sleeping with a street light shining into their window. Correct. Or they're going to have And some that problems. can really affect your hormonal yeah. stuff and everything for women. One time I lived next to a high school and they kept these bright lights on the football field all night. And I had all this irregular menstrual cycles and everything during that time. And as soon as I moved to the country, it all went away. Isn't that like interesting? That. Well, it's remarkable to me how many of our, uh, of our physical uh, systems are reset with really restorative sleep, restful sleep. Oh, yeah. I mean, just the... the thinking about the immune system and how all of that, you know, all of those little hormones and different enzymes go through and everything is kind of reset for the morning. I'm just, it's kind of amazing. Our our body really runs on a clock. And for women, there's the monthly clock. And then for everybody, there's the 24-hour clock. And modern living really disrupts that. In a lot of ways, uh, like, for example, shift workers, people who work nights or people who travel a lot for a living and they um, cross time zones a lot, those can really disrupt those internal clocks and it can take a lot of work to restore Mm -hmm. that. There's evidence that certain diseases, including breast cancer, are more common in shift workers and people who cross time zones a lot. And it seems to have to do with that melatonin thing. Yes. Melatonin has breast cancer preventing properties. Oh, that's interesting. And probably prostate cancer preventing properties too. So it's just really important to sleep in darkness. Right. Darkness and hopefully quiet too. So once we're asleep, we can stay asleep. Yeah. I know some people just can't avoid the um, noise and you might need to wear earplugs or something else. Um, Some people have success with like a white noise generator to drown out, you know, the music from the apartment next door or something like that. Yeah, in fact, some uh, air purifiers ha- have run on this sort of low rumble, which is mm-hmm. kind of helpful for that too. 
Yeah, but the best thing would to be just only to hear natural noises. Oh. Yeah. It's great if you can get it. Right. <laughs> Maybe out here in Occidental they do. Exactly, yes. Are you listening, cows listeners? Um, I'm going to go to a little music break, and then we'll be back with my guest, Dr. Lois Johnson, talking to us about sleep and herbs and dreams this morning. This is Dream Talk Radio, and in the studio with us this morning is Dr. Lois Johnson, a physician in Santa Rosa who works with herbs as well as Western medicine and is talking to us about a lot of really fascinating um, sleep issues and, and other connected things. So, um, Lois, what uh, we were talking a little bit about insomnia before mm-hmm. the break, and I'm curious, what other insomnia patterns you've noticed? Well, I would mention a couple things. One is the sleep patterns in adults who were abused as children or who just had difficult, chaotic childhoods. And then there are a lot of specific things around women's health, um, sleep pattern issues that are um, specific for for women at the various phases of their reproductive lives. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll start with the first one. Sure. Um, <clears throat> seems like that pattern, people who were abused as children in various ways or people who grew up, say, in an alcoholic family or just chaotic, crazy households, often bad things happen to kids at night and those kids learn to sleep with one ear open kind of oh interesting so they learn to sleep in a state of hyper alertness because they had to try to keep themselves safe and they didn't know if somebody was going to come in the bedroom and do something to them or if their parents were going to get in a knockdown drag out or some something like that so just again from listening to people's stories I've noticed that people who had that kind of childhood um, commonly have an insomnia pattern where they just never sleep deeply. They just um, sleep in that hyper alert way all their lives. That's how they learn to sleep. And um, they often have other issues, depression, anxiety, panic disorder, and other things that need to be addressed. But in a way, because that was a learned pattern, I would encourage them to see it as something that potentially could be unlearned. Right. And that takes a lot of work because that is deeply ingrained part of who they are. And often they're hyper alert all day, too. You know, they just never really relax. So for them, any practice that teaches their brain what it's like to feel relaxed would be good, whether that would be meditation or yoga, exercise definitely. But I often refer those people for hypnotherapy mm-hmm. because it's like if their brain can get a message that it's now it's safe to sleep deeply and peacefully and nobody's going to come in and hurt you or do anything to you. So I've had some success with that. But those people often need um, herbs and other supplements to alter the brain chemistry. And these would apply to the stressed and anxious person. So I'll just talk a little bit about those. Mm-hmm. I use a lot um, 5-hydroxytryptophan or tryptophan, which is um, a precursor of both serotonin and melatonin. And it also helps with depression and anxiety and some kinds of chronic pain. So it's a really good sleep herb. And generally, I would give 
the whole dose at bedtime for the person who's having trouble sleeping. And it's not like a sleep remedy where in half an hour you, you get sleepy. It's really gradually increasing the serotonin, which is a relaxing neurochemical, and eventually increasing melatonin. So it can take some time, but that would be a common remedy that I would recommend for that person. Um, also use quite a bit GABA, G-A-B-A, right, acid, which is another neurochemical kind of a companion to serotonin in helping the brain to be more relaxed. And that one, I generally give one dose in the morning and one in the evening. So again, it's not a sleep remedy, but just gradually over time, it helps people to be more relaxed. It's basically the brain chemistry, altering the brain chemistry in the direction of being more relaxed. And also um, theanine, which is a constituent from green tea, um, makes a good companion to the GABA um, when you're trying to get somebody's brain chemistry to just move in a more relaxed direction. Mm -hmm. And also sometimes I would be working with, again, the adrenal herbs, which I've alluded to a few times. It sounds odd that doing something to your adrenal would help you sleep, but the adrenal is very involved in the sleep-wake cycle, the cortisol that I mentioned, and also if your adrenals are squirting adrenaline all the time, you can imagine that that would interfere with your sleep. So the adrenal herbs um, I see as being truly balancing. They're not pushing the adrenal in any direction, but helping it to um, function in a more healthy and normal way. You could call those herbs adaptogens, and that refers to something called the general adaptation to stress syndrome, uh -huh. which is a very well-known way that the adrenal reacts to stress. And when people have chronic stress or severe stress, sometimes the adrenal forgets how to shut down, for example. And even after long periods of time, it can get very flat and like not function when you need it. So the, probably the two that I use the most there are Siberian ginseng, Eleutherococcus syndicosis. I don't use the, um, the Chinese ginseng as much because it can be too stimulating for some people. Uh -huh. So I use that Siberian ginseng a lot. Um, and also ashwagandha is another herb that I use there. So those are two just kind of on the gentle end that work for most people. Uh, very rarely a highly sensitive person won't, won't tolerate those. But generally, um, again, you would give those during the day as a way of, over time, getting the adrenals to be in better balance. And that in itself sometimes improves sleep quality for the stressed person. And again, the person who was abused as a child or had a very chaotic, difficult childhood, their adrenals have just always been dysfunctional because they always had to be on this hyper-alert state. Right. It's almost as though, it, you know, our bodies go right into fight or flight at the least provocation, where it sounds like what you're talking about is just entraining ourselves on a lot of different levels to, to go to a third option there. Right, right. So again, it takes a lot of work. I think the person who has that adrenal pattern where they're chronically stressed or chronically hyper alert, 
absolutely needs a daily practice of relaxation. Some people don't do well with like a sitting meditation, but just um, a walking meditation would be something that might work. And I just don't think that talk therapy, as much as I admire and think it's um, beneficial, really fixes the body part of that um, difficult childhood experience. So um, the sleep disturbance is really common there. And some of those people just never really slept deeply. And it can be such a blessing if they finally get there. And even from my practice, just working with people's dreams, I'm always struck by the long-term effects. I mean, this doesn't, it sounds like something that could have, that could shift easily in, in small increments of time. But really, I get the sense that what you're talking about is, is a longer process of, of learning, you know, the, the relaxation, learning how to relax is something that deepens and, you know, in all sorts of ways over a longer period yes, of time. Yes, it does. And again, that entrenched way of being in your body, if, you know, if you're 40 or 50 years old and you've lived like that all your life, you can imagine it's not going to change overnight. Right. But I'm a big believer in the healing power of hope. <laughs> and just, you know, letting people know that there's a possibility that they could change that um, is is a really good thing to know. Yes, very good thing. So you've talked a little bit about different patterns of insomnia. Anything else? Yeah, well, let's talk about women's health oh, as it applies to sleep disturbance. So... Um, For menstruating women who have a menstrual cycle, there are these huge peaks and valleys that happen with our hormones. And so it's really common for menstruating women to have sleep disturbance at some phase of their menstrual cycle. Most commonly, it's premenstrual. And generally, if the person has trouble getting to sleep or staying asleep when they're premenstrual, I would suspect a hormone imbalance where there is an estrogen predominance because estrogen I would consider kind of a stimulating hormone and progesterone, some of the metabolites of of progesterone are are actually sedative. So, um, and often there are other clues in the kind of PMS that the person has if they have premenstrual symptoms. The estrogen predominant pattern is often the um, cranky, grumpy, bitchy, irritable person. Oh, I know that kind of person. (laughs) I know her too. (laughs) Um, And whereas the person who's sleepy, groggy, and depressed, they maybe have too much progesterone. Interesting. So that's a kind of simplistic way, and there would be other things. I can actually do a saliva panel. It's like measure saliva over the course of a whole menstrual cycle to kind of see that, but um, that would be a common pattern for menstruating women to have some kind of insomnia in premenstrual. And by the way, the estrogen predominant hormone imbalance is far and away the most common one. And there are a lot of reasons for that, Um, lifestyle things, diet, lack of exercise, and also just the the um, sea of environmental estrogens that we're swimming in. Right. So those things all affect that. <clears throat> and for that person, I wouldn't give valerian. I would be doing Vitex, for example, which would be an herb to 
bring the hormones into balance and maybe some liver herbs because the liver eliminates the excess estrogen and also helps get rid of the environmental toxins that act like estrogens and also paying attention to the digestive tract which you know is the final step of elimination of the estrogens so um, that can be a way to help that person's insomnia just by balancing their hormones but I would mention skullcap as a specific herb for emotional stuff that's related to hormones I use it in both um, menstruating and postmenopausal women who have any pattern of um, emotional stuff that uh, is related to their hormones and it just seems to turn down the volume on that Wow, that's really helpful to know. Yeah, I really love that herb. And um, people just tell me, it's like all of a sudden I could handle that jumping out of my skin feeling that I would have premenstrually. One time I had a bunch of people at my house for Thanksgiving dinner, and one of my friends was premenstrual, and she was just unbearable. <laughs> so I gave her, she was just cranky and grumpy and gloomy and she couldn't get into it. So I give her a dose of this and like half an hour later, she's, anybody want to go dancing? <laughs> <laughs> it's so, this is such a fascinating conversation for me because, you know, you look at um, herb books for herbs to, for uh, sleep and so forth. And they lump a bunch of them together, mm -hmm. you know, the skullcap and the passion flower and the valerian. But what I'm hearing from you is all the, the gradations of wit, what each herb is particularly good at addressing. Yeah, and that's something you only learn by experience. Right. And, um, you know, I've been doing it for enough years now that I, I do have that sense of like the herb that's good for a particular issue because one of the great things about herbs which drugs do not do is herbs do many things you know right so you can pick one that has more than one action like for example motherwort which i mentioned earlier um is a tonic for the cardiovascular system so somebody who's got heart disease issues and insomnia i'm going to think of that one right mm -hmm. away Mm -hmm. But it is definitely an art, and I will confess that I don't always get it right the first time, but um, the longer I do it, the more I have that sense of the nuance sure. of the herbs. Yeah. So I sort of interrupted yeah. your, your um, you were talking about different uh, stages of, of uh, women's reproductive Yeah, lives. so let's talk about menopause. Because sleep disturbance is incredibly common yes. in menopause. And I can tell you from personal experience, being a crone myself now, that um, it, it's profound. And there are a lot of reasons for it. I mentioned that progesterone is a natural sedative. So that's one of the things um, when you go through menopause, you not only stop producing um, estrogen, but also progesterone. So that would be one reason why that happens. But there are also um, discomforts that happen in menopause that disturb sleep, the, probably the biggie being the, the night sweat and the hot flash. Right. And there seems to be like the adrenals get overactive during that time too. Um, and the body seems to be in a state of flux and imbalance that can really take time to settle down. So um, for that person, again, I wouldn't just give valerian or 
you know, passion flower. I might give those, but I would definitely be working with the more traditional menopause herbs, um, you know, like black cohosh and red clover. Motherwort is another one that's great in um, menopause. It's a traditional menopause herb that has some mild to moderate sedative properties. Occasionally, I do prescribe um, a little bit of progesterone, natural progesterone at bedtime. Um, for the hot flashes and night sweats, I'll share just one of my very best things is called Hesperidin, H-E-S-P-E-R-D-I-N. It's a bioflavonoid, and I would say that 90% of my menopausal patients get relief of their hot flashes and night sweats. Wow, that's that. that's significant. It seems to stabilize the um, the vascular system in some way. I actually overheard one of my employees telling the other one once, I hope we never run out of this stuff. There's going to be a brawl in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> There's people coming in, please give me my spirit. And so I've been really impressed with um, how well that one works, and I'm surprised that more people don't know it. I'm hoping the word gets out because it's it's just such a good one. You generally take a couple capsules in the morning and a couple at bedtime. Mm. And over the course of a couple weeks, it just turns down the volume on that. Um, and then in menopause, again, partly I'm saying this from my own experience, it's, it's not just the hot flashes. It's like your brain is just functioning somewhat differently after menopause. And seems like a harder time calming the mind, a harder time being in the relaxed state. And also menopausal women can become sensitive to things that they used to tolerate, like um, caffeine might really disturb your sleep. One cup in the morning is too much, whereas before you could drink many cups a day and not notice it. Alcohol is not good evening thing for a menopausal woman to do that will often make the hot flashes worse and sometimes cause some sleep disturbance or something like that. And um, the menopausal woman also has to pay a lot more attention to her environment Uh so that she's able to easily change the temperature by throwing off the clothes or something. I had this idea, I'll pass it on to anybody who wants it, of a clothing line for menopausal women. I was going to call it the no sweat shop (laughs) because you just need layers. You need clothes that breathe and so on. Right. And hopefully you need some air circulating in your bedroom. Yes. Yeah, you need your windows open, and it can raise issues if you sleep with a partner, your partner generating heat, or, you know, the two of you can't any longer agree on the number of covers on the bed and that kind of thing. And I can't tell you how many times somebody's come in kind of complaining that they're fighting with their partner about their sleep situation, and that would be a really new thing for the menopausal woman. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, um, it usually settles out over time once the body adjusts to those changes and people kind of learn coping strategies and everything. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So it's interesting to me that you were talking about progesterone as a sedative. It made me remember being pregnant and how it. It, it, there is a, a nice quality of sleep 
I mean, ideally, mm-hmm. and there's all, I mean, no wonder pregnant women get a little bit more progesterone because then you've got the sciatica and you've got the kicking. Right. Right. <laughs> Seems like a nice counterbalance to all of that. Yeah. I mean, in pregnancy, there's a dramatic increase in progesterone. Um, and so, you know, I know women who just hardly could keep their eyes open in the early part of pregnancy. They're just so sleepy. And that that would be a kind of an extreme example of what progesterone can do. And you're right, that is a blessing for the pregnant woman. Yeah, absolutely. And later in pregnancy, the other discomforts that come up, um, you know, need to be dealt with by, you know, you need to sleep differently than you did. Right. Prop yourself with pillows and basically you just let the baby kick. Because that's, that's right. what he or she needs to do. It's interesting to me too. I mean, the... Not to say that all women have to have children or anything, but there are these ways that that the hormones, um, you know, the reproductive hormones allow for all of these phases of life. For instance, you know, when you have an infant, my God, you're up, you never, you, you know, countless numbers of times during the night. And so makes me wonder about prolactin and some of the other hormones yeah, that oxytocin. are... oxytocin. Oxytocin, yeah. Yeah, so those, all that is designed to um, make it possible for the woman to do that without, you know, throwing the baby out the window. <laughs> they don't do that very often. <laughs> so the oxytocin makes you fall in love with your baby. Which and, is helpful. Which is helpful and which I think you would really need in order to do that. Yeah, I never got to the throwing the baby. I fantasized about it mm-hmm. once or twice, but never quite got there, thank heavens. Yeah. <laughs> and eventually, hopefully, that baby starts to sleep, too. Yeah, exactly. So I'm interested, too, um, how how you deal with allergies or how you are... Do you ever come across... Um, sleep disturbances that are that you can identify as allergies and what in your mm-hmm. practice has been the most common or? yeah um there is actually some data that food allergies are a common cause of insomnia and also if you have allergic rhinitis which is affecting your sinuses and you can't breathe through your nose, for example, and then your mouth breathing, and then your mouth is dry, and then your throat's irritated. So there's kind of a bunch of consequences of that. Um, Food allergies are really diverse. You know, it's not like there's one I would point to, but I would have to say dairy and wheat are the most common food allergies that I see. And allergy causes this whole cascade of chemical stuff in the body um, that can interfere with sleep histamines so for example you might know if you ever did benadryl for poison oak or an allergic reaction that it makes you really sleepy that's an antihistamine so histamines are basically have some arousal properties in the body and the antihistamines would have the opposite so with food allergies I found the best way to do it is is by experimenting and noticing what works for you. Although there are tests, they're not 100% reliable. Mm-hmm. And um, I can also use a quercetin, which is kind of a natural antihistamine that quenches the allergy reaction without causing profound sleepiness. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I'm thinking of that in terms of the... Um increasing amount of people that I see with sleep apnea or who just say that they wake up and they're just not they're not rested they're Mm -hmm. exhausted and you know their partner's complaining of snoring or that sort of 
you know, snorting where you mm-hmm. can't. Yeah, I have a high um, index of suspicion for that, and I refer um, uh, my patients often, kind of if I even, if it crosses my mind, I refer them for the sleep apnea studies. Mm -hmm. And I think there are more than one reason why that happens, but a lot of my patients don't fit the textbook picture. You know, I have one patient who's this tiny, skinny little person, and she basically fell asleep while she was driving and hit a oh, pole. Oh, no. She's okay, but um, when she told me that, I went, no, you know, we got to figure out what's going on here. And she had sleep apnea. Um, usually the textbook says, you know, the fat person. Right, right. But I don't think that always holds true. So to me, the trigger to think about that if the person sleeps alone, they may not be aware of the snoring. It's usually the bed partner who notices that, or sometimes even the person in the next room. Right. Um, but it's um, poor sleep and daytime sleepiness, not just being tired, but actually being sleepy during the day. And often there are um, cognitive problems, you know, like not being able to think straight. Mm-hmm. So anyone who has snoring or daytime sleepiness, I really would strongly recommend getting the test to see if you have the sleep apnea. And wearing that CPAP device that they recommend is um scary at first, but I know lots of people who have benefited hugely from that uh-huh. and really changed their life yeah. for the better. So that's one area where I would go with the traditional yeah. sleep study and the traditional Western treatment. So do you know, would you recommend any, I mean, we've talked about obviously diet and allergies that could be causing that, but that's a harder sell for some people. They would, you know, if they know they have sleep apnea, it's it's a lot easier to think about. Okay, I'll I'll put this little mask on mm-hmm. and, and and sleep well, or I've you know even people who get the um, the glottis removed mm-hmm. and the whole yeah surgery thing. The problem is that allergy is not the only reason that people get that. Uh-huh. Sometimes it literally is the anatomy of their throat, or for some reason their muscles relax in a certain way that blocks the airway. But if there are allergies, again, my number one thing is the quercetin nasal right. spray. And quercetin is another bioflavonoid. And um, I also prescribe nettles for the allergies. Mm-hmm. If you have allergies to something in the environment, you might not be able to totally avoid that. But food allergies, you can just stop eating them. Right, right. Once you figure out which ones they are. Mm-hmm. And I, want, I just want to say something about yes. restless leg syndrome oh, while I'm oh, thinking please. about oh, it. Oh, yes. If we have time. Yes, absolutely. So um, restless leg syndrome is um, a condition where there's this uncomfortable sensation in the legs where you just feel like you have to keep moving your legs. And it's a common cause of sleep disturbance. And the way I always start with that is I do a nutrition assessment because there are a number of nutritional deficiencies that are associated with it. Iron deficiency, if your ferritin level is below 50, um, I've found this in a significant number of my patients and just by correcting the iron deficiency. The normal range the lab gives for that test, which is a measure of iron stores, is um, goes below 50. So some doctors would just look at that and say, you're in the normal range, Don't it's not deficient, uh-huh. but you really want that ferritin somewhere above 50. Um, B vitamin deficiencies, magnesium deficiency. 
So I actually do a lab assessment. That's the first thing I do for the restless leg syndrome. Some people have it from a problem with their nerves going into their legs. And another simple strategy that you can try if you have this is to um, elevate your legs for a period of time before you go to sleep. And I think I had three patients individually tell me that they had noticed this. And apparently kind of draining the blood from the legs puts less pressure on the nerves. I don't really know how to explain it, but I just have people prop their legs up really good, like above the level of the heart, um, not just on one pillow for 20 minutes to half hour before going to bed. And sometimes that really reduces the symptoms of the restless legs if it's simply due to nerve problems. And um, also warming the legs. Um, Some people found it helpful to do a warm bath, which Uh is something I recommend often for people with sleep issues of all kinds as a kind of an end of the day ritual. And massaging the legs. So those mm-hmm. are some things that might help. And then all the sleep herbs that we've been talking about um, can help to just calm the nerves. Yeah. But the sleep, the um, restless leg, they're, you know, again, it's part of a bigger story. So you have to, if, if they got nutritional deficiencies, why? Right. Yeah. Right. And speaking of nutritional deficiencies, um, vitamin D deficiency mm-hmm. can um, cause sleep disturbance. So, and it's the most common nutritional deficiency I see in my practice. (laughs) I would say more than half of my patients who are all very health conscious, um, take supplements and everything, have vitamin D deficiencies. And people often notice that they sleep better, they're more relaxed. Um, It can help if you have the seasonal affective disorder, Uh help some kind of pain. And possibly one reason for that is that vitamin D controls um, calcium metabolism in the body. And calcium, of course, is something that has a relaxing effect on muscles, nerves, and the nervous system generally. So even if you feel like you're taking enough calcium, if if you don't have the ability to metabolize it... Right, you basically won't absorb it. You might as well flush it down the toilet. It's expensive urine. (laughs) All that calcium you're taking. And vitamin D malabsorption is really common. Um, All of the drugs that block acid production in the stomach, like Pepsid and Tagamet, Mm -hmm. all of those, they block the absorption of vitamin D. So that's one of the reasons, um, Mm -hmm. basically. Or if you just don't have enough hydrochloric acid Mm -hmm. for some reason on your own. So I'm testing that constantly and, you know, have a whole ton of experience on knowing how to dose it and everything. And if you're wondering about that, the best thing is to ask your doctor to order the blood test. And even the mainstream doctors have become aware of this. Uh I've been doing it for many, many years, but it just seems in the last year that the um, traditional Western doctors have become more aware of that. I guess uh, that was one of my, my last questions. I know we're, we're kind of coming up to the hour now, but where can people find out more? Or is there, I mean, are you a lone voice in the wilderness here? Or do you, is there a network of MDs now that, I mean, obviously sleep medicine has made huge inroads into, you know, into the general mainstream understanding of what goes on. But your particular approach is, um, do you, can you, re, uh, you know, point out resources or other? Uh, um, not really. I mean, my 
approach is, is gained from many, many different sources and just from daily practice. And again, I would say for me, the biggie is being willing to take the time to really listen to people's stories and ask mm -hmm. enough questions to get to the bottom of it. Um, I've seen a few articles in the alternative medicine literature that touched on all this on some level or another. Um, so you could maybe go online and find some of that. Yeah. But, um, I'm not aware of a alternative sleep medicine clinic. Maybe somebody needs to do that. Maybe somebody does need to do or or the sleep medicine clinics that are out there need to sort of enlarge their offerings to, yeah. to yeah. think about those alternate approaches. Well, Dr. Lois Johnson, thank you so much for giving us your uh, expertise and a wealth of information. Um, this has been Dream Talk Radio with Lois Johnson, who is a physician in Santa Rosa. So, um, Thank you. Yeah. I enjoyed it. That ends this week's Dream Talk Radio Show podcast. Thanks for listening. And remember to tune in every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. at www.kows.fm. This is Ann Hill, and I'll see you again next week.